This is Lekka. I'm Lucy Dillow. On this episode, I'm talking to Helen Graves. Helen is a food and recipe writer and editor based in South London. She's known to many as a barbecue specialist. She's the co-founder and editor of the fantastic independent food mag Pit, which also has its roots in live fire cooking. She's known for her foolproof and creative recipes. She's known for her excellent food and travel writing, both in national and international publications, but also for great local papers like Peckett Peculiar. I love reading her work in there. But to me, and many thousands of others, I imagine, Helen will always be known as Food Stories. After the food blog, she started in the mid to late noughties. In this interview, Helen and I talked about how she approached writing her first full-length cookbook. I wanted to sort of explain to people how I came to be the cook that I am today, because I do use a lot of global influences in my cooking, be it through different techniques or different flavours. And I wanted to kind of explain how that happened, but also wanted to acknowledge the people that have influenced my cooking. Why barbecue is so specifically appealing to her as a way of eating together? It's always fun when you like go to someone's house for dinner, but when you go to someone's house for a barbecue, it's almost like you know you're going to have a good time. And why grilling tender stem broccoli over fire is a tiny rebellion against what many people expect from barbecue culture in this country. Because the stalk sort of shrivels and goes like like a you know, like a, a dry fried green bean or like an asparagus. Right, yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the, the ends, they go really quite burnt and you get the bitter bits, but then you can put like a dressing on them and balance out that bitterness and it, the frilly bit soaks up all the dressing. Firstly though, we're going right back to the beginning. Because I started in food when I started a food blog when there weren't really any food blogs around. It was a long time ago, I don't know, it must be like 15 years ago. And the first blog post I ever did, I was living in a block of flats at the time and I set up a barbecue on the roof. Somebody spotted me and just like put a letter, I had a letter from the council the next day saying that like, you can't barbecue on the roof. I was like, oh yeah, it's probably quite obvious actually. It's like a bit of a fire hazard. But I still wrote it up and I think that was my, actually my first ever blog post. So my transition into food and barbecuing did come at the same time. That's amazing. <laughs> and that's funny, actually, because the story I wanted to mention to you, which is um, the first time I met you was I booked you to be a guest on a Guardian podcast about food I was producing, yeah. which I can't remember how long ago it was, but it was a long time, maybe five, six years ago. And I remember you telling a story about um, having to have the council of the fire brigade come out to your flat to basically like officially certify yeah. Because you had so many barbecues officially certified <laughs> that you were allowed to have them on the balcony. That's right. So I guess you're now like on the right side yeah. of barbecue law. Yeah, different block of flats. Actually, I'm still in that flat. I'm oh, just right. about to move out. But um, it's got a huge balcony, which is kind of like a uh, more of a room without a side on it. So oh, yeah, yeah. I've got like five barbecues and I've got like, yeah, I've got like a big egg and then a, a, not a big green egg, but it's a a Kamado Joe and then I've got a mini green egg and I've got a jerk drum which is more good for like catering because you can get loads on it and yeah. it's got two levels um, so I did like a friend's birthday party with, for that re- with that recently and I've got a Weber kettle which is what I tested every recipe for the book on because yeah. I think that's, that's what, what people, people have, people have. Yeah. and then I've got an Outback barbecue I work with them and I'm just about to get a Weber 
actually asked me the other day, they were like, do you want another barbecue? It's a smoker. I was like, oh. Can't say no. Yeah, just sort of like thinking, if I just move that there and I move that there, I could probably fit another one in. So that would be six. But yes, I had to get permission. I was like, right, this time I'm going to do it right. So the fire brigade came round, had to look around the balcony and they were like, yeah, this is okay. If you're interested, the Guardian series was called Let's Eat. I'll link to it in the show notes. It was basically my first freelance podcast production gig where I'd essentially been given free reign with guest booking. And I largely just asked people that I really loved in food. Marie Mitchell was on it, as were Olia Hercules and Ed Kimber. And along with Helen, I also booked Lizzie Mabbott who also had a food blog I was obsessed with called Hollow Legs. I can't really remember when I started reading food blogs. I read a lot of style and fashion blogs as a teenager, things like Style Rookie, Style Bubble, White Lightning. But at some point in, I guess, my early 20s, it started becoming a habit to regularly browse a select group of food blogs for restaurant recommendations mostly. And sometimes I would even search the name of the restaurant I wanted to go to along with the name of the blog to see if they'd written about it. I did that a lot with Lizzie's blogs and I also did it with Chris Popel's blog, Cheese and Biscuits. There was just something about restaurant writing had never really felt that relevant to me before. This was the era of the London paper and London Light, the um, battle of the free paper on the streets of London. And I definitely remember reading restaurant reviews in those, but only in the same way that I read the horoscopes. <laughs> it just didn't really seem that relevant to me on a real life scale. No shades to astrology. I wanted to talk to you about the blog because, I mean, yeah. that's how I first like read your work. Mm -hmm. And it was an era where that was basically the food writing that existed outside of like, you know, like broadsheet restaurant reviews and all the rest of it. That was the interesting thing that was happening. What was it like at that time? Can you just talk a bit about what it was like to be writing about food at that time and the kind of responses you got and finding that community? Yeah, it was wonderful. It was like a completely different internet. You know, it's this wonderful corner of the internet where everyone was just really nice to each other. We all... Nobody did it to monetize. The word monetizing wasn't even used then, you know, or maybe it was, but I wasn't familiar with it. And um, nobody made any money out of it for like the first five years. And we just did it for completely just because we wanted a space to write something about food and, and we weren't professionals. I'd never done any professional food writing. There was no chance I was going to try pitching. And the idea of pitching something somewhere was absolutely terrifying to me and also I wasn't good enough back then mm -hmm. I kind of just practiced on my blog and I had that blog food stories for like 10 more than 10 years probably 12 15 years and yeah we used to just comment on each other's blogs so that was how you, you found other people you would just leave a comment on their blog and then your username would be a link and then they just click on the link and then you find their blog and then you start reading their blog and add it to your Google Reader. So oh, Google Reader. Google oh, okay. Reader. I loved it so much. And then when I go away or something for like a week, I come back and my Google Reader would be like bursting with new blog posts. I'd be so excited to go through them all. <laughs> you would never get any negativity. Well, maybe like the odd comment or something, but not like below the line situations are now. Mm -hmm. It was genuinely just a really accepting, lovely space to be in. And I'm so happy that I did it and mm. I was part of it because that's never going to exist again. The internet is a different place now. It's just not possible. And that's really, that's sad, but I'm in mean, the world moves on. But I'm just really happy that I was there at the beginning. 
<laughs> and I recently retired that that blog. Oh, did you? Yeah. So it's more of just like a, a CV like a kind of yeah, yeah website, a normal website now. Um, but I've kept some of the recipes. Not some of the early ones. The kebab one is on the roof is not on there anymore. Oh, that's a shame. <laughs> I know. I think I had to take it down. I can't remember why. Maybe I was embarrassed about something that I wrote. Some of the early stuff that I wrote was just not the best, you know? We all that's the thing. We all sort of like grew up on the on the internet and sort of like interning on in our own spaces almost. Like, yeah. you know, just kind of practicing our writing and I tried just trying so hard for so many years to be noticed and then Twitter happened and that's when we you were able to start advertising yourself mm. which we've just not been able to do before other than leaving a comment on someone else's blog and then suddenly there was this social media and I could find this network of people and like you say I met Chris and Lizzie who are still like close friends today and I could just you could link to your content and all the all your followers would see it and that's when things started to take off and then my first piece of work was a <laughs> really massive thing just completely randomly it was a billboard campaign for Lurpak Busser oh they just emailed me and I was like are you sure you've got the right person because this is crazy and I made a pie and I went along to the studio in East London I was just completely overwhelmed they had a food stylist there photographer to make this pie look amazing backlit so it was really dramatic oh my god and it was a chicken pie and it was on billboards all around London and then it had its own hashtag on Twitter, Pie Watch. <laughs> so people would snap a picture of it and then post it on Twitter. And it was just, I oh mean, God, I was wow. beside myself. <laughs> yeah. And honestly, I mean, now I would be beside myself yeah. or something like That's that. That's the holy grail of SponCon even now. <laughs> so, yeah, that was where it all started. I don't want to get too meta because I feel like I'm talking about food writing a lot recently rather than just doing it, uh, especially with doing the Vittles live event at the British Library food season uh, last month, which was about British food writing. But as Helen's someone who's been involved in independent food media, as it's evolved over the past decade or so, I was really interested in her take on the current food media landscape, especially the bit that sits out of what's kind of considered more mainstream food writing. What's the main outlet for this sort of writing now? I asked her. Well, it's all about newsletters, isn't it? I mean, what Jonathan Nunn has done with Vittles is incredible. I'm sure people that listen to this podcast are probably Vittles readers as well. I think there's a lot of crossover. I think there's a lot of crossover. (laughs) And I think it's really important what he's done, actually, because he's given a platform for people that didn't have a space before. And it's, you know, it's pretty incredible, actually. And I think he deserves that success that he's had with that newsletter. It's amazing. I'm I'm an avid reader. Yeah, because what had happened was food writing had kind of stagnated a bit. You know, there's still loads of great food writing out there, but no one was really doing anything different. And um, him, you know, finding a way to make a space for those voices, I think is just really, really interesting and really important. So I think he's given the the whole industry like a massive push forward. I agree with you. And I think what Jonathan's done with Vittles is amazing. And the fact that it's not just a personal space, like he is, like you say, using that platform to create space for other people, which I think is amazing. But it's almost like, for me, it's almost like a product of, um, we're really obsessed with like the cult of personality now. So it's almost like Mm. there has to be somebody that's already got a personal brand. And I mean, I'm not saying Jonathan did really have that. He built that himself as part of Vittles as well. But I do think that's really interesting because like maybe, I don't know, 10 years ago, all the people that are writing for Vittles might have started their own blogs. But 
that feels like just a little bit more futile now because there's not really, I don't know, it's hard to explain it, but I've been thinking about this a lot recently and I can't quite articulate why it's so, why it feels so different. Mm. And I think because I work in media as a producer, like just seeing the kind of appetite for talent, quote unquote, and people have to have a following and yeah. yeah, And I feel like I'm much more interested in what everyone has to say about food. Yes. Not just select people who might, famous for whatever reason I agree and um because I'm a person who's like not a personality I'm like not a in front of the camera person I've I've been asked to do like demos and things quite a lot and I I just have to say I'm sorry but it's not my skill set okay so you do turn that stuff down I turn it all down yeah because it's just not I don't feel comfortable doing it and I think it's really important I don't have to say yes to everything. And there yeah. was definitely a time where I would have done that. And I would have been awake for a week, <laughs> like not sleeping, Sweating crippled with anxiety. It. I'm not the person that stands up in front of everyone and kind of performs. It's just not me. Yeah. But I, I know what you mean. Like there's a lot of, like TikTok is a great example, yeah. right? You know, there, there are a lot of people now that just have huge profiles on TikTok, to, you know, videos of making food and things like that. And that's great, but I just don't consume any of that media. I'm not interested in the slightest. It's like reels on Instagram. Mm. I um I have trained my algorithm to exactly know what I want, which is videos of cats and like people falling over drunk. <laughs> and great. that's all I'm interested in. If it shows me a food video, I'm like, wow. I know. The but, algorithm must find you very confusing. They're like, really but, confusing. But I <laughs> I Every now and again, it has a go at showing me a food video, and I'm like, no. Because it is... Why, why do you think you don't like it? I don't know. I think it's just that, that side of food media that I'm, that I'm just not interested in. Yeah, fair, fair. Sorry to anyone that makes it, but... No, I, I think it's really interesting because there's such an aesthetic to, like, those TikTok videos as well. Like, I personally am an avid consumer of them and I oh, love TikTok. Yeah. Mm. I'm kind of interested to see how a new generation is going to take to cooking through it, I mm. guess. Because I wonder if it's a different way to learn how to cook, I think. Like... If you see someone doing something, it's very different to seeing a photo and reading about how it's made. Um, so For I'm quite sure. interested in that. There's a massive contrast between the sort of old food media and the sort of like slowness and the sort of vibe mm. of being relaxed and, you know, um, maybe watching like Keith Floyd faff around for like half an hour, you know, or like watching Delia make a cake or something. Mm-hmm. And that was kind of long and drawn out and here let me show you every single tiny thing that I'm doing and then now it's like condensed into sort of 30 seconds and there's there's a lot of like hacking going on there's a lot of shortcuts there's a lot of nothing there's anything wrong with that take these ready-made products and you can make this thing that sort of resembles another thing that takes a long time to make I have nothing against but it's just interesting yeah yeah, so it's sort of gone from like here's cooking as a sort of relaxing pursuit to here's how to make something really tasty in like no time at all with like minimum effort. I also wanted to talk to Helen about Pit, the independent food magazine she started with art director Holly Catford and photographer Robert Billington. Originally focused specifically on live fire cooking, Pit now has a broader remit around food in general. And I'm going to use the example of the much cited MSG issue, but just the breadth of stories that pit covers is extraordinary the photography is all stunning there's these great illustrations fantastic recipes it's been such a success story at what is obviously a really tricky time for print media 
and it's a bit of a cliche, but it's a bit of a Tina Brown approach. Like it's like there's, you know, there's a lot of fun stuff and there's a lot of more serious stuff. And even the more serious stuff, we try to present it in a fun way. So Pitt did start out as a barbecue magazine. And now, as you say, it's got a broader remit. So it's more of a, we just evolved, you know? Yeah. Um, and we just found, it's not that we didn't want to just be a live fire magazine, but there were so many stories we wanted to publish that people were pitching. And it just made sense to broaden. Yeah. Um, so now we do, we cover a couple of live fire stories every issue. But it's just, it's, it's a much broader general food magazine. Pitt started because Holly e- emailed me one day because Holly works in magazines as a full-time job. Right. And she wanted to start a magazine. She'd been barbecuing a lot with her with her boyfriend at the time and she knew that I was really into, into barbecue too. And she just emailed me one day and was like, do you want to start a magazine? <laughs> and I was like, probably, yeah. And then we were like, oh, should we go to the pub? So we just went to the pub and that was the, the basis of the foundation of Pitt, like right. meetings in the pub. And then Holly knew Rob anyway. She'd work with him on like editorial photography shoots and stuff. And we just all get on really well. And they're like my best friends, you know. And that is, I think that comes through in the magazine. I think, well, I hope it does. Because we really love working together. Mm. And we really, as I said, we try to keep an element of fun to the magazine. I just think it's really important to have that lighthearted element to it. But also, we do try to cover much more in-depth stories. Mm. And I'm not sure there's another print food magazine like that that would publish something about, you know, sex workers in India who are making, you know, um, illegal liquor production to survive. Right. You know, that kind of journalism I'm not seeing anywhere else in in a print magazine. And I'm so proud to be able to publish stories like that. But then we also have you know, something at the other end of the scale in the same issue. Helen's first full-length cookbook, Live Fire, came out last month. In many ways, it feels like all of the things which have defined her career so far are coming together in one place. It's beautifully and cleverly designed. Her pit colleagues, Holly and Rob, have stepped in on art direction and photography, respectively. And Valerie Berry's food styling is exceptional. It's also full of meticulously developed creative recipes, but also features almost journalistic elements, with kind of half-reported, half-first-person profiles about people and dishes and places that have influenced Helen's cooking and recipes. These sections give the book a dimension that doesn't often come through in recipe writing, a very real sense of how this dish and way of cooking is part of someone's life. There are also some stories that I think a lot of us just wouldn't necessarily immediately associate with live fire cooking because they're unfamiliar. So Swiss goat farmers heating goat milk for cheese over a wood fire many generations of fish smokers in Craster on the Northumberland coast, or cooking tortillas in Belize, among many others. The tortillas, I was really lucky to do quite a bit of travel writing because travel and food obviously go together super well. And I used to write travel stories for quite a few magazines. And I was in Belize once in Central America and... There's a lot of um, Mayan people live there and there's, you know, this incredible history with with this culture. And I found myself just around someone's house for lunch, like 
just amazing how you just go anywhere and people just invite you in. Do you speak Spanish? No, I wish. Yeah, so it's more of a like, ge- more of a like gesturing situation. <laughs> sure, sure, sure. These women just kind of like, there's no tortilla presses. So wow. they just kind of have a ball of masa and then just kind of pat it out, but like making a circular motion with their hands, but like really fast. And then cook it on the kamal, which is like a flat, like a plancha mm. or just a, a flat piece of metal over a fire in indoors but like kind of ventilated but like okay, okay it's kind of filled yeah. with smoke and I, w- I remember texting my boyfriend and being like I know how to make tortillas now I know how to make tortillas and they, when they were cooking them on the kamal they were doing this thing where they were kind of like patting the tortilla with their hand to see if it was cooked oh and God. when they pat the top of the tortilla it puffs up into like a like a pitta yeah um and I was like oh and <laughs> you're right it was a bit of a nightmare with the translation but I I managed to ask them, is that how you know it's cooked? She was like, oh, yeah, yeah. So I was like, great. When I get home, I'm going to be like the, tor- the tortilla master. But I can do it a bit, but it doesn't happen every time. So I'm quite disappointed. Right. But, yeah, if what I, I don't do it with my hand, but I just do it with, like, a, a spatula or something. Okay. Just use it. I don't normally cook tortillas on the barbecue. I normally just cook them indoors. A cast iron pan, but really hot, and then give them a pat, and then sometimes they go poof, like puff up. It's super satisfying. Yeah. But I think the reason they didn't, and this is probably wrong, but um, I think I didn't have enough moisture in my masa mixture. Right. So I've I've got more hydration in it now. That recipe's in the book. So give it a go. Give it. A try pat. patting. Other stories that I've got in there. I mean, Jamaican jerk absolutely had to go in because. I mean, people know me for like being quite obsessed with that those flavours of the Caribbean. Mm. Like Scotch bonnet chili is something I use probably you know three times a week. I'm like quite immune to that heat and often forget how much I'm putting in. And people can see people's you know cheeks beading up with sweat. I'm like, oh sorry, but I think it's an amazing fruity floral fragrance that chili. I just can't get enough of it. And combined with all spice berries and like spring onions and thyme and garlic and lime juice in a jerk marinade, that to me is one of the best things you can eat. Mm. And then it was so interesting to me because jerk is, it has to be cooked over smoke. Like smoke is such an important part of the flavour profile of jerk. And so when I started going, you know, trying to find different jerk places and speak to different cooks and they were like, look, it's not, you can't cook jerk in the oven. It has to be cooked over fire. You know, it has to be cooked for a long time. Your jerk chicken has to spend a long time with lots of smoke, which is why when you see a jerk drum billowing smoke, you're like, it's a good one. this is a good one. <laughs> so, I mean, I love the three places that I love in the most in London, Tasty Jerk and Thornton Heath and then Smoky Jerky and New Cross and then JB Soul Food, which is in the book in Peckham. Ben and Jennifer, they're just, uh, Bill and Jennifer, sorry, they're just amazing. And I remember finding that place and just walking down the, the street in Peckham, the high street, so it's just off the high street, and just smelling the smoke and being like, you know, this I can smell it. Oh, there's a good one. There's a good one. Um, and then when I turned the corner, there was this massive queue out of the door. So I was like, right, great. So I go there a lot. So they had to be in there. Yeah, there were loads. I could go on forever. Sorry. And then the other one that I absolutely had to get in was FM Mangal, which is a... Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I always yeah. thought it was Turkish, but they're actually Kurdish. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Oh, cool. In Camberwell in South East London, where I live. <laughs> I go there so often. It's embarrassing. And I get there a Dana wrap, just a very specific order. Double a Dana wrap. So it's like Ooh. two kebabs, obviously. And it's really super thin bread. It's not... It's like a sort of thickness of, of a lavash... Mm. But I don't think it's a lavash. It's like a really stretchy 
Maybe it is. I'm not sure. Mm. And then the salad and then obviously chilli and garlic sauce and then the sumac and the onions. And I just... I've eaten that... I would say I've eaten that kebab like literally hundreds of times, probably even thousands like, over the years. So that had to go in as well. But yeah, but what I wanted to do was paint... There's a lot of London in there because that's where, part of my story, I guess. But there's also something about um, smoking traditions around the UK. So yeah, there's kippers up in Craster. And I, yeah, I just wanted to sort of explore. There's beach barbecue. Yes. Um, all sorts. Yes, I, I did a, a beach barbecue thing, a beach barbecue story in Wales with uh, for Pit magazine. So that's in there too. Mm. How did you go about deciding what was going to go in it? I, I just feel I feel overwhelmed just thinking about that. <laughs> well, I wanted to. It was a. It, it, I wanted to sort of explain to people how I came to be the cook that I am today um, because I do use a lot of global influences in my cooking, be it through different techniques or different flavours. And I wanted to kind of explain how that happened, but also wanted to acknowledge the people that have influenced my cooking because I think quite often that's not done and um, I, I, I just really thought that was really important. But I wanted those people to tell their stories in their own words as well, which is why I decided to do the interviews and then sort of write them up in that sort of like interview, half interview, half sort of narrative style. Mm. And I think it's worked out well. But of, like you say, it's like impossible to include everybody. So it's sort of the people that have really shaped my style the most, I guess. Um, like my friend Magda and her husband Jack. Um, Magda is Eritrean and she cooks the most incredible food. Like you have the giant injera bread and all the food is kind of piled on top of it. And it's just such a social way of eating, which is quite sort of like similar to barbecue in a way, you know. I think barbecue is a very unique way of eating mm. in that it's always fun when you like go to someone's house for dinner. But when you go to someone's house for a barbecue, it's almost like you know you're going to have a good time. <laughs> Do you know <laughs> what I mean? Yeah. And I don't just mean if there's alcohol involved. There may not be alcohol involved for you at all. But it's it's sort of like when there's a barbecue, like the gloves are off in terms of entertaining, I think. And um, that's one of the things that I really love about it. One thing that the stories and the way that you'd written them up in that style that you described, so kind of like half like a narrative sort of feature style, mm. but also you very much hear people talking in their own words, they really bring it to life. So it makes you understand, like you're saying, like about the real like joy of experiencing that food in person. And I think, I can't remember the name of your Cypriot friend, mm. the psychologist. Oh, yeah. Um, and she was talking about how there's just a real difference between like formal dining at the table that she experienced in England yeah. and then going to Cyprus and like barbecue would just be this whole different thing. Like what do you think it is about it that makes it such a, like a unique experience like that? Well, I think it is unique, but also I think it's like really every day. That was the thing okay, with yeah, the book. Yeah, yeah. It's like, it's like, these are people that, that, uh, from um, cultures that do just cook over fire. Like yeah. like in some parts of the world, you know, barbecue is just cooking because it is. you might not have a kitchen, you might not have gas, you might not have an indoor space to do that. So I wanted to just really bring all those stories into the book. And I think that's what you mean when you say that, you know, it kind of brings it to life because it is just so natural for these people to, to cook that way. Mm. Whereas for for me, barbecue growing up was like getting some sausages on a disposable barbecue my parents didn't have barbecues at all. There were no, I, there was no, I never saw any barbecue culture. Sort of finding all that was a really exciting thing for me. When did you find that? When I moved to London, because I grew up in a really, like, boring 
village, <laughs> sorry if my family's listening to this, in Gloucestershire, exposure to different cultures is extremely limited. Sure, yeah. To, um, to put it mildly, it's extremely white. So that just wasn't, you know, I, I never encountered any different kinds of food, really. And I moved to London about 20 years ago to do a master's um, when I was used to be a psychologist before I was a food writer. <laughs> that was when I was like, OK, wow, there's some seriously exciting stuff <laughs> that I've not been eating. <laughs> and now I need to eat all of it, like, immediately, every day. And that's when I really knew, I was like, what have I been doing? I really should be working in food. Right. Um, and then so started the kind of long road towards making that happen. I think one thing that really struck me about not just Live Fire, your book, but also like other writing that you've done around barbecue and Live Fire cooking is kind of like misconceptions that people have about that sort of cooking. Mm. Can you talk a bit about the sort of misconceptions you've encountered and how you in the book went about pushing them off the table? Yeah, I really wanted it to be just about cooking but outdoors mm -hmm. um, and not all about meat, crucially. There, is, there are plenty of meat recipes in the book. There's also plenty of seafood and plenty of veg and a few desserts. And I just, I thought it was really important because there's a lot of barbecue culture. There is a side of barbecue culture that's very much just about stacking up meat. And I don't have anything against people, you know, do what you want to do. Like, but it's just not my thing. Mm -hmm. I have been known for saying like barbecue, not brobecue, because I think there is a, quite a bit of like masculine culture and bro culture around this, around barbecue. And it's about like, you know, sticking as many sausages as you can on skewers or like having like five cheeseburgers and covering it in cheese. And that's, you know, that's fine. But I just think there are so many more beautiful ingredients that you can cook on a barbecue, especially like for vegetables. You can really bring out the characteristics of different vegetables. Like one of my favourite things to cook on the barbecue is tender stem broccoli mm. because you've got the two parts of the, of the, I was going to call it a floret, but I feel like it's not really because it's got a longer stem. You know what I mean? Yeah, I wonder if it is called something different. I mean, I guess it is technically still a floret, but is a floret part of a bigger head? I don't know. I don't know. But um, yeah, because the stalk sort of shrivels and goes like like a you know like a, a dry fried green bean or like an asparagus. Right. Yeah, you know yeah, I mean? yeah, yeah, yeah. And then the the ends they go really quite burnt and they get mm. the bitter bits. But then you can put like a dressing on them and balance out that bitterness and it, the frilly bit soaks up all the dressing. Mm. And I just find that so delicious. But then with, you know, more sturdy vegetables, I like to give them a bit of a soak and a marinade, sometimes even like overnight, if it's just really simple and I remember. <laughs> and they really suck it up. Mm. And then you can really, you know, like carrots, for example, I love to do. You mentioned parsnips in the book as well. Parsnips Never are in there. Never would have occurred to me. Yeah. Um, and I smoke them. I put like a, f a little bit, tiny bit of wood in there or you could use wood chips. And smoked parsnips just delicious. And I do like a quick pickled chilli dressing on the top. And I think it's just something different to do with parsnips because mm. personally, before I wrote the book, I think I probably ate parsnips like once a year. <laughs> I was like, I wonder what... What else could you do with That's it? the great thing about writing this book. Some of the recipes in there, I was like, oh, just try it, probably won't put it in, you know. And then when I tasted it, I thought, no, actually, this is a real banger. It's got to, it's got to go in. There's a duck with a blackberry hoisin sauce. Oh, wow. And I thought I probably don't want to mess around with hoisin because it tastes pretty amazing already. <laughs> But I thought, actually, I wonder what it's like with, with sort of sweetness and sharpness mm. of blackberries in there. And it's really good with the duck and the pancakes and, you know. But, yeah, vegetables, root vegetables I love. But it's just about cooking them a little bit differently to the, the more delicate vegetables. 
And the other thing is I wanted it to be seasonal. So mm. obviously I'm not suggesting like stand there in the pouring rain like or if it's snowing or something, I wouldn't do that. But I just think it's a really nice way to get a different dimension of flavour into your food. And you can, you know, smoke something a little bit and then maybe finish simmering it inside or do it the other way around or to like do a whole pumpkin. I've got a pumpkin in there filled with like a beer fondue. Yes, the picture of that is, I mean, all the photography is incredible, but the picture of that is like, wow. Yeah, Rob's photography is really amazing. And Valerie Berry, who did the styling, she's like, she's just, I just idolise her. I just love her so much. She's really talented. I just really fangirled on her. She was just really nice about it. <laughs> Thanks, Valerie. Well, it looks beautiful. Yeah, so. it does. Yeah, I'm getting emotional thinking about it, actually, because <laughs> she's just really great. <laughs> but, yeah, there's a big a big cheese pull on the fondue. So, yeah, stuff like that. You know, you could do that for, like, a bonfire party or something, for example. It'd be great. I, I was going to ask you about the seasonal aspect to it, because I think I, I think you shared an Instagram story about it. There was someone was talking about it. I can't remember the context, but um, somebody referred to it as seasonal and achievable, which I really liked. Yeah. And it's so, we just don't think of barbecue or like outside cooking in that way at all. And I thought that that was just really refreshing, like yeah. a, as an approach. Um, and also as some, my dad is like, big into barbecuing in the rain all year round so <laughs> I was like I personally relate to this love it <laughs> I have stood out there with a bolly over the barbecue before but the first time I did it I tried to use the brolly again and obviously it absolutely reeked of smoke it's not just a little bit it's unusable oh wow okay. yeah so okay. um just a warning And so the last thing I wanted to say is yeah. that, um, so like many people in London, I don't have any outside space. So I live in a top floor flat. I don't have a balcony. I don't have a garden. But I feel like you've written Live Fire in a way that means it's also for me, which I think is really clever. <laughs> um, was that something that was important to you? Oh, thanks for saying that. <laughs> That's a really nice thing to say. <laughs> At the end of the day, I just want people to cook from the book. You know, I just want people to eat something nice. <laughs> I want people to enjoy the food because that's what I do. And so basically almost every recipe, the jerk chicken, for example, I, I didn't do a recipe for yeah, cooking. Yeah, Because like I was saying earlier, it's so essential to have that flavour of smoke in there. Yeah. But nearly at 99% of recipes, there are alternative instructions for cooking in a griddle pan. Um, that's the ideal situation is yeah. to have a cast iron griddle pan. But you could just get something really hot, you know. And like for other things like um, the slow cooked dishes, you know, like a, a shoulder of lamb, a leg of lamb, sorry, you can obviously do it in the oven. The dessert recipes, like there are some peaches cooked in wine um, that you have with like ginger nut biscuits and clotted cream. You can just do those in the oven. So yeah, there are, there are alternative instructions because I just want people to eat the food, even if they don't have any outside space. And then maybe one day you will. <laughs> well, that is that is truly the dream. <laughs> well, you can just go to your friend's house and hopefully they will have a... I have said that to my, my garden <laughs> having friends that I am bringing the book around. Yeah. <laughs> when I get in my new place, I'll have a big barbecue. Come round. Great, great. Everyone can just have a go at one recipe. Yeah. You can you can, uh, you can take the night off and yeah, be great. just cook something. That'd be great. I wouldn't be able that. to help myself. I'd have to get involved. <laughs> After I stopped recording, Helen was talking more about the process of writing the book. And she told me that finishing it had a very unexpected side effect for her. Her cooking changed. She started to be drawn towards different dishes, different flavours. 
Like she'd needed to get this book out of her and then she could move on to a different stage of her cooking. I think recipe books can be easy to take for granted for readers sometimes. They're produced at such enormous volume and it's hard to keep up. But this small detail seemed so profound and really highlighted that it's easy to forget how personal books like Live Fire are for the writers. Obviously I'm really excited, but also I'm really nervous because it, it is such a personal thing making a cookbook, especially this is my first, I've written a small sort of a small sandwich book before, that was about eight years ago, but this is my first proper cookbook. And I put so much of myself into it. It's so personal and it sort of feels like when you're when you're releasing your first cookbook, you're sort of setting it, you're setting the scene. Like here I am, you know, introducing yourself. And and that's really hard emotionally. Like when I'd finished, I just I ate cheese sandwiches for a week because I just could not face cooking anything and I had no creative juice, no no brain power at all. And I was just emotionally wrung out, you know. So now, <laughs> like a year later, I feel I can actually enjoy it. Lekker is written and produced by me, Lucy Dearlup. Thanks, Helen Graves, for being my guest on this episode. Helen's book, Live Fire, is out now on Hardy Grant. If you'd like to support Lekker financially, you can donate to my Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Lekker podcast. There are now monthly free newsletters via Patreon, so you can sign up to get those sent into your inbox for free. And there are also monthly bonus podcast episodes for paid Patreon subscribers. So for £3 a month, you can get access to those. Loads of other ways you can support Lekker. You can rate and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. Buy merch from the Lekker Big Cartel site. And just tell your friends. All the music in this episode is by Blue Dot Sessions. I also just wanted to say that this episode is being released later than I planned because I've been really busy. I'm producing a brand new Radio 4 food podcast presented by the incredible Andy Oliver. It's called One Dish and I'd love for you to give it a listen. Each episode features a guest talking about a food with significant meaning in their life, from Cheryl Hole on lasagna to Candice Brathwaite on fried plantain. It's available now on BBC Sounds or wherever else you listen. This is not sponsored, although it probably should be. (laughs) But I'd love for you to listen to it. Lekker will be back in your podcast feeds next month. Thanks for listening.